amongst Aboriginal law and um, uh, legends and that kind of thing, there are things that we sort of UFO researchers and paranormal researchers would perhaps seem to approximate or uh, equate to UFO type of events. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 3. It is May 18th, 2008, and we have got a real barn burner of an episode for you. It is part one of a two-part lengthy conversation with Australian ufologist Bill Chalker. That's right, my friends, we are returning to Down Under as we once again explore the international UFO scene. In this first installment, we're going to be discussing the history of the UFO phenomenon in Australia, ranging from Aboriginal times to pre-1947 cases and noteworthy sightings from the UFO boom of the 1950s. Along the way, we're going to find out about the various trends and UFO flaps that occurred in Australia over the years, along with the explosion and abduction research from the 1990s onward. We'll be hearing about key cases like the 1954 Sea Fury incident, the Father Gill case, and the Mundrabilla case of 1988, among many others. Bill will also describe in depth his forensic investigation into an alleged abduction that ended up spawning his book, Hair of the Alien. This is some fascinating research that Bill has done, CSI style, on the abduction phenomenon that is really some riveting material. Altogether, it's another international showcase for BOA Audio as we continue our investigation of the global aspect of ufology with Australian ufologist Bill Chalker. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Bill Chalker, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Bill Chalker was born in Grafton, New South Wales, Australia, was educated at the University of New England, graduated with an honors science degree, with majors in chemistry and mathematics. Since 1975, he has worked in the food industry as an industrial chemist, laboratory manager, and quality manager. Bill Chalker is one of Australia's leading UFO researchers and has written extensively on the subject. He is a contributing editor to the International UFO Reporter and coordinates the New South Wales UFO Investigation Centre. He was the Australian representative for the Aerial Phenomena Research Organisation, APRO, from 1978 to 1986, and the New South Wales State Representative for the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, from 1976 to 1993. In 1996, Bill's book about the Australian UFO experience, The Oz Files, The Australian UFO Story, was published in Australia by Duffy and Snellgrove. 2005 saw the publication of his second book, Hair of the Alien, which details his forensic investigation into the Peter Corey abduction case. His websites are www.theozfiles.com and ozfiles.blogspot.com. Be sure to check out those great sites. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. 
This interview was recorded on April 21st, 2008, Part 1 of Bill Chalker talking about Australian ufology on BOA Audio Season 3. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special edition of Been All of America Audio. As many of you know, I love international ufology. It's one of the key areas of the esoteric that I've always been fascinated about and have kind of made an aim of the show over the last year to really explore international esoterica. And longtime listeners will remember our last year's episode with Tony Healy when we discussed the Yowie in Australia. I have a very keen interest and fascination with Australia in and of itself. I really love Australia. It's one of the places I would love to go see and visit and check out. So when I connected over the spring here with Bill Chalker, noted Australian ufologist, I knew it was time to return to Down Under and explore more esoterica from Australia, namely the UFO phenomenon and the UFO scene in Australia. And I think we got the perfect guest here to discuss all that. Bill Chalker coming to us direct from Sydney, Australia, 14-hour time difference. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us on Been All of America Audio. My pleasure, Tim. Excellent. Well, uh, let's start out with the bio, the background. You know, who is Bill Chalker, and how did you become interested in the UFO phenomenon? Well, I guess my interest sort of really started uh, as a young teenager in the mid-60s. Um, uh, I was born in uh, Grafton, which is a, a large sort of town in um, northern New South Wales, one of the, the well, certainly the most populated state in Australia, which is on the east coast of Australia uh, in terms of geography. And uh, it was during the mid-60s, uh, 1966 in particular, that uh, a lot of locals, including police officers, etc., uh, uh, were reporting sightings, and these got kind of national prominence. And uh, as a kid, that kind of uh, uh, tweaked my interest. I it seemed like uh, I was one of the few people in town that wasn't seeing UFOs, at this, but it certainly struck my interest, and uh, uh, particularly when you had people like police officers uh, uh, being amongst the witnesses, and uh, uh, it certainly got a lot of media attention at the time. And uh, having kind of a, a sort of a scientific bent, I was kind of interested in it from a, a mystery point of view, and I, uh, uh, you know, I read the works of Charles Ford and a lot of the early UFO researchers out of America and the UK and that kind of thing. So it, it started to um, really drive my interest, and uh, that interest sort of translated by the late uh, 60s into kind of direct uh, investigation. And uh, certainly by the early 70s, I was actively doing a lot of uh, field work and investigations, interviewing of witnesses, that kind of thing. Nice, nice. I kind of said to you here before we started the interview, there's sort of a various big picture tent poles, I guess you could say, that'll prop up this interview. To start it out, let's talk about the UFO phenomenon in Australia, the history, I guess you could say, of the UFO phenomenon in Australia. Not so much the, the people looking into it, but the actual phenomenon. Well, one of the particular things that I've always been interested in is sort of, as you indicated, the uh, how long has this phenomenon been going on for? Uh, is it purely something that uh, happened since 1947? And so I I took a long kind of uh, particular interest in pre-1947 cases and uh, I was quickly able to establish that there was a lot of sightings uh, that went back that certainly resembled the kind of thing that was being reported since 1947 right around the world and sort of two uh, standout cases uh, um, that were uh, particularly interesting as far as I was concerned was a, a case that uh, was recorded as, a, as occurring as early as 1868, uh, and that involved a Parramatta surveyor, 
and he was also uh, twice alderman of the Parramatta Council, um, which was, I guess, the first um, city that was um, planned in Australia with the, with the white settlement that uh, took place uh, from uh, uh, 1788. And uh, from that point of view, uh, Parramatta was the first uh, provincial city that, that appeared in Australia. And so in having a report from... Uh, uh, a, a local identity uh, in 1868 was kind of interesting, and this was uh, not your uh, straight up and down sort of sighting of a light in the sky or anything. This was kind of a, virtually a full blown sort of contact abduction type case where um, he was taken on board what he described as a flying ark, and, uh, which uh, apparently landed in Parramatta Park. And uh, he, uh, so it was a very interesting kind of case. and. Uh, uh, I became aware of that in 1975 through a, a document that purported to be a copy of this um, original memorandum book that the uh, Parramatta Surveyor, we, Frederick William Birmingham, had written. And uh, so it was part of a fairly intensive investigation to establish that story's credibility as to whether it was an original, authentic historical account or whether it was a, a much more recent historical hoax. And I was able to establish... Uh, well, with a fairly high degree of certainty that this was a real case that apparently had occurred back in 1868 and there was also a, a daylight sighting that the uh, engineer, um, Frederick Birmingham, uh, he was a surveyor and engineer, uh, had made as well. Uh, and so, so uh, that, that gave certainly a, a rich foundation for, I guess, the historical nature of the UFO experience in Australia. And the other account that really interested me as well was one that occurred in 1927 that's uh, fully 20 years before the modern flying saucer era, and this was uh, certainly very striking. It involved a, a family, um, a share farming type people that uh, ran a kind of a dairy herd and had uh, pigs and that kind of thing on the property, and uh, uh, it became like a almost a, uh, an early version of uh, the Mothman prophecies being played out uh, in uh, uh, the far north of New South Wales at a, a little a locality called Ferndale, and uh, it, they, they described seeing lights, uh, disturbances amongst the cattle, um, uh, got into a pretty bizarre situation involved um, uh, the death of cattle and um, mutilation of pigs, um, UFO landing, uh, physical traits event associated with it, um, strange people appearing on the property and also uh, strange creatures and that kind of thing. So it was a pretty interesting kind of uh, case that occurred and I got that story directly from one of the participants who was a 10-year-old boy at the time. Wow, that's some wild stuff. It was an intriguing case because it really, to me, it was very similar in nature to uh, the saga that uh, John Keel and others documented uh, in West Virginia in, in the mid-60s, and this was a situation that occurred way back in 1927, and uh, it even involved uh, what appeared to be uh, uh, sort of large bird-like creatures, etc., that were being linked by the locals to the uh, mutilation and um, death of cattle and, and livestock. Yeah, that's an amazing story. That's that's some wild stuff. Is that in the files? Uh, I do mention that just kind of briefly. Um, it's been written up uh, some while back in Fate magazine and also uh, in 14 Times, uh, the, the UK publication. Nice. I'm going to have to look into that. Now, you've established here some of these cases in the 1800s and the 1900s. Now, what about the way back history of the of the Aborigines and, and the pre-European settlers and stuff like that? I presume there were UFO sightings going on back then as well. Well, obviously, the further you go back in history, it's the more difficult it is to be certain about what you're dealing with here. And uh, But clearly, amongst Aboriginal lore and um, uh, legends and that kind of thing, there are things that uh, we as sort of UFO researchers and paranormal researchers would uh, perhaps feel 
seem to approximate or uh, equate to uh, UFO type of events and uh, one of the richest traditions is uh, the idea of sky gods and that kind of thing, beings that uh, uh, were in, involved in sort of uh, leading Aborigines into I guess sort of their development of their civilization, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Particularly a lot of these traditions were linked with um, what were I guess generally referred to worldwide as shaman type figures or witch doctors or um, in Australia they were often referred to as men of high degree because they were the uh, practitioners of magic and sorcery and medicine etc within their particular tribes and it was these gentlemen that had these rich traditions of shamanic initiations that certainly uh, when you start to look into them bear very striking parallels to um, alien abduction type stories, you know, these were situations where they were um, kind of abducted by these sky beings and then taken up into um, aerial realms, etc., and then, then they would be returned and quite, quite often they would have um, special powers and then they would become the, the shamans of their tribe. Huh, wow, interesting. Now we all kind of know, I'm sure the listeners here kind of know, and I'm sure you do, the, the sort of evolution of ufology of UFO phenomenon in America, like since the 1940s onward, how it, you know, it started with the Foo Fighters and, and all the different sort of variations and incarnations and stuff like that. How closely would you say that phenomenon, you know, paralleled the American path, if you will, in Australia? Did it, like, explode onto the scene in the 40s like it did in America, or, or you know, was it already around earlier, or, you know, how would you say that the path of what's been going on with the UFO phenomenon in the last 60 years has gone? Well, certainly in Australia, uh, from a local point of view, uh, uh, particularly in terms of what sort of percolated into the public eye and public arena, I guess, um, it was kind of seen, particularly in those early years from 1947 through to about 1950, as largely speaking an, an American kind of phenomenon or an American hysteria or that kind of thing. You know, that was kind of the, the take that, I guess, the mainstream media and, I guess, mainstream commentators had of the whole flying saucer subject at that time. It seemed to be like an American phenomenon, but... Researchers have established that uh, uh, there were a large number of sightings that occurred um, right from, I guess, the, the modern era from 1947 right through to 1950 here in Australia. It just that most of these weren't widely reported, uh, yet they took the same form as most of the UFO. UFO sightings uh, from America, and uh, and we we obviously know with uh, research that uh, this was not just a, an American phenomenon; it was a, a worldwide phenomenon and, and something that had obviously international dimensions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is what we're doing yeah, here tonight. Yeah, yes. In, ter in terms of, uh, I guess, public perception, um, flying saucers really became big time in Australia in 1950. There was a sort of a large UFO wave, mainly located down in Victoria, and then. The first of the major waves um, uh, of all flaps, or uh, whichever term you'd like to use, um, took place uh, really in 1954, uh, which was mainly a wave again that sort of seemed to be located mainly in Victoria. Um, and it was as if uh, the state was invaded by flying saucers. There were sightings uh, right across the state. Uh, there, there were sightings certainly taking place in other states around Australia as well, but the main focus seemed to be in Victoria during 1954, and uh, that was a kind of a massive wave that took place uh, from the very beginning of January right through um, uh, January and February, and then sent a peter out for a while, then took off again in the, around about April and went through to about, uh, May, June, July of that year, and this was this preceded the, the big wave of UFO sighting and landing events that took place in France in the latter part of 1954. So uh, certainly, uh, 
if it hadn't already done so, uh, flying saucer fever really grabbed whole of Australia, particularly in 1954. Yeah. There were, there were earlier waves in um, early years, like 1952 and 53, but most of these were kind of isolated events, close encounter type of events, that, and few of these got public prominence. Yeah, like it was building up to that big wave. It seems like back in the day here in America, it was like the cigar-shaped ones, and then it was flying saucers, and then it became black triangles. Has there been any sort of change in as far as what people are seeing? Well, well certainly uh, during the 1954 wave, there were a number of different types of objects being reported from lights through to circular objects to your, your um, cigar-shaped type sightings. Um, you know, the, the large cigar-shaped ones were often correlated with uh, in the day, particularly with uh, uh, the kind of more controversial works of uh, George Adamski. You know, these were often regarded by UFO enthusiasts as being the motherships, etc., that sprouted the smaller dish-shaped craft and that kind of thing. Uh, the triangular phenomena was not something that came along into the UFO field, even here in Australia, until uh, later decades and uh, uh, and I guess you have your, your ongoing argument as to whether that represents uh, Earth-based technology or, or bona fide sort of uh, alien technology. But uh, most of the running of the phenomenon itself, the sightings, uh, roughly approximated what was being uh, sighted and experienced here in America. Yeah. Now, how about some uh, some key cases? You know, we're kind of showcasing Australian ufology here, so I'm sure you have some cases that bear mentioning, I guess you could say, to a predominantly American audience that hasn't heard about Australia. What what sort of key cases do you think uh, have happened in Australia that we'd be interested in hearing about? Yeah, well, re recently I was asked by 14 times to uh, provide a list of what I regard as the 10 best cases, and uh, rather than uh, chasing up the usual international suspects, I, I stuck to the Australian region with cases that I knew or that I was directly personally involved with in terms of investigation or follow-up, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And one of the best, uh, as far as I was concerned, was one that took place back back in 1954. And this is a, a very impressive case. Um, it was one that uh, got the attention also of people like um, Dr. Jim McDonald and also uh, J. Allen Hynek. Um, they regarded this particular case as, as a very impressive case and tried to find out as much as they could about it. Basically, what occurred was that in late August of 1954, a naval uh, pilot, uh, Seamus O'Farrell, Lieutenant Seamus O'Farrell, was flying a Sea Fury aircraft. Um, he was a naval pilot and he was doing a, a routine night uh, flying uh, exercise uh, going across country. Um, and he was near um, a, a rural town called Goulburn, uh, which is essentially on the south coast of New South Wales. Um, and he was expecting to uh, have a, um, a ra radio communication from his base, which was now a naval air station uh, within the uh, a few minutes, etc. So he was expecting that routine call, and uh, all of a sudden, two uh, massive lights appeared that took up positions either side of his aircraft. And the Sea Fury at that time, his aircraft was uh, regarded as the fastest aircraft flying in Australian skies. So that, that, that's fairly significant uh, in terms of what played out in this event. You know, he has these two objects either side, and uh, which was quite startling to him. And uh, uh, he, he also felt that um, he was somewhat loath to uh, report this to um, the ground radio crew at, at Narra Naval Station because he kind of felt that uh, that could uh, affect his credibility and his flying career. So he, he kind of uh, was in a bit of a dilemma and then uh, uh, within minutes uh, the 
expected routine call came from our naval station and um, and uh, they went through the routine procedures, etc. And then, then they, they were the ones that actually asked him, um, who have you got up there with you? And uh, his response, and he told me this years later that uh, he could have kissed those guys. That this was um, uh, kind of relieved him from the um, the dilemma that he had that mm-hmm. uh, they were actually seeing on radar, ground radar, uh, what he was visually seeing himself. So we have here a, a very strong correlation between a um, independently verified radar visual event of a, a two UFOs that had taken up position either side of his aircraft, and uh, the ground radar people were tracking. Uh, these two UFOs and his aircraft, and uh, so at some point too during the, the actual process, um, the two objects closed in on his aircraft, and it was at that point that he he kind of feared a mid-air collision. As soon as he thought that, the objects seemed to move further out and um, rejoin their original position either side of the aircraft. So huh. he kind of felt that there was some kind of um, interplay going on there, but um, the sighting lasted for uh, several minutes, and then. Uh, one of the objects crossed directly in front of his aircraft, uh, joined up with the other one, and the, both of them flew off at high speed. Now, uh, he was very emphatic that uh, here he is flying uh, what was regarded as the fastest aircraft flying in Australian skies at that time, but these two objects left his aircraft as if he was standing still, which was pretty shocking for him as a pilot uh, flying in Australian skies at that time. Now, when he returned to base, uh, it was immediately... Um, uh, checked out uh, medically, uh, and then he was debriefed and then interviewed, and, and the, the case became a, a kind of a major case in terms of military investigations, uh, and particularly from the intelligence organisations at the time. It, it was certainly subject to very intense investigation and, and was regarded as a very, very strong case in terms of the credibility of it, but it was certainly kept pretty confidential at the time, um, even to the point that in the latter part of that year, in December of 1954, the naval minister was at the base as well. And by that stage, um, uh, he was being accompanied by journalists on some sort of routine kind of um, uh, visit to the base. And uh, the, the journalists had heard rumours of this story that had occurred in late August of 1954, a few months earlier, and they asked the minister, what did he know about this case? And he, he knew nothing about it, which uh, certainly rattled him. And, the, and, and that's when the story leaked out in the media courtesy of uh, the uh, naval minister um, making some references and demanding information about it. And uh, uh, so, so he, he was a very striking case that was very carefully investigated by the um, military researchers of the day. And uh, I've had the opportunity on many occasions to meet with Seamus O'Farrell, the pilot, and he's an extremely credible witness. Um, and it's one of the best cases of that nature to have occurred in Australia. And in fact, uh, Heineck, uh, Dr. Heineck regarded as one of the best cases of that kind uh, worldwide. Nice. Yeah, it sounds like a tremendous case. I'm surprised. Is there like a name attached to it in a way? You know, every case seems to have. Is it the Seamus case or something? Uh, it's regarded, uh, often referred to as the Sea Fury case. Um, and I've written it up on my website and uh, in the Oz files and on various kind of um, uh, sites as the Sea Fury case. All right, nice. Yeah, so if people want to check out more about the Sea Fury case, they could. Now, what you, you talked about the 54 wave. Uh, how often would you say these waves came about in, in Australia? Well, the waves in Australia have a pretty distinct pattern. Um, the, the first of the waves, as I said, was 1954. Uh, there was a major wave during 1957. Uh, there were wa- uh, a huge wave, particularly focused around Papua New Guinea, which at that time in 1959 was a territory of Australia or a protectorate of Australia. 
uh, almost like a colony, that, that, that type of situation. Uh, that was where the famous Father Gill case was played out at, at a Anglican mission uh, in Papua New Guinea. Um, this is uh, the Father Gill case where over two consecutive nights he and um, uh, members of the mission and, and native uh, tribe people uh, observed a, a very large aerial object with figures above it and that uh, there was sort of kind of communication um, and these objects came close, or the object came closer, and it was one of the often regarded as one of the best uh, cases of uh, of uh, entities being seen with a, a UFO uh, in terms of re recorded history of the subject. And Father uh, Gill, who I've also met on many occasions and interviewed, and uh, tried to get to the bottom of the case as much as I could over the decades. Um, he always struck me as an extremely credible witness, and um, sadly he died last year. But um, he was well regarded by people like Alan Hynek and Jacques Vallee and MacDonald as a very, very credible witness and uh, the case has been highly regarded worldwide. So that's 1959. The further waves occurred in 63 and one of the biggest waves was uh, between 1965 and 1966. 1969 was a huge wave of sightings right around Australia. Um, that certainly was my baptism of fire on the local north coast of New South Wales, uh, my hometown area, uh, was besieged by UFOs and even numerous landing sites, uh, marks on the ground, uh, the forerunner of the so-called crop circles, but uh, these were much more credible. They, they had sort of direct linkages to UFO landing events, that kind of thing. And, uh, and then uh, after that, 1972, 1975, 1978, uh, you can see from this that there was often a... Um, Something like a almost like a three-year uh, gap between a lot of these uh, yeah. major flap years, and uh, uh, that even got people like myself uh, getting into kind of like a, a kind of a predictive mode that UFO phenomena would occur um, in, for example, 1978, and uh, we were kind of anticipating large amounts of sightings. And in fact, uh, 1978 was one of the biggest years, and uh, obviously it was also one of the biggest years for Australian UFO activity be, to be known worldwide because most. Uh, People interested in the UFO phenomena would be aware of the, the, the famous Valentich case of the pilot, Frederick Valentich, uh, disappearing in the wake of a UFO encounter over Bass Strait. Uh, that's the big ocean area between uh, Victoria, the southern state, and uh, the island state of Tasmania. Um, he reported for six minutes a, a strange object uh, interacting with him over Bass Strait while he was flying in a Cessna. And, uh, uh, and then at the end of the conversation, there was some... Uh, strange sound reported uh, on the on the conversation during the conversation and uh, with ground control at Rabin in in Melbourne and uh, the pilot and the plane have never been found since and so it's one of those major mysteries both in terms of aviation and UFO circles that uh, uh, resonates worldwide and it's certainly one of the uh, the more striking UFO events in in terms of the Australian UFO history uh, so that was 1978 and and certainly since then. Um, the next, the three-year cycle seemed to become less predictable from that point on, and uh, the next kind of big way was really, I guess, um, uh, there were sort of striking events occurring in 1980, but uh, there was events uh, occurring in a well, big wave in 1983, 85 was a big year, and 87 to a lesser extent, but certainly 1988 was a huge year, uh, particularly with the Another case that got worldwide prominence uh, from Australia, and that was the Mundabilla case that involved the Knowles family, uh, a um, family of uh, a mother and um, 
three uh, sort of sons uh, who uh, claimed that they were um, uh, harassed by a UFO driving across the uh, uh, road, which is called the Nullarbor Highway. This this huge long road, it's one of the longest uh, and straightest roads uh, in the world. It runs from uh, outside of Perth in Western Australia right across to uh, Adelaide in uh, South Australia, and it was uh, during that uh, long drive across the Nullarbor Plain that um, that the Knowles family had this encounter with an egg-shaped object that they claimed uh, lifted the car off the road, and uh, it was a very frightening experience, and uh, uh, one that was subjected to a lot of investigation and certainly very intense media uh, attention as well. It was one of those cases. It was one of the first that got subject to, I guess, uh, uh, a form of checkbook journalism. The, the, the people were kind of tied up by the media and that kind of stuff, and it, it often led to difficulties in terms of humble UFO researchers doing an investigation. Uh, yeah. But it, it was certainly a very striking case, and um, it also um, had the Noel family being kind of treated like... Um, uh, country hillbillies in the sense that they were being perceived as kind of naive kinds of witnesses that, uh, and that they, their case got a lot of, uh, flack and, um, a lot of it was very unfortunate and probably not appropriate. But, uh, uh, what researchers found was that there were a lot of other UFO sightings going on at that time across the Nullarbor and, and, uh, statewide and, um, and because of the, attention or negative attention that the Knowles family were getting, a lot of these reports weren't being made through to the mainstream media and uh, it was UFO researchers that were picking up all the, what are those stories and uh, so uh, it was kind of a cautionary tale in terms of people that have these experiences. Um, they were less likely to report it to mainstream media because of that kind of attention that the Knowles family got. Yeah, that's something we see happening here in America all the time as well. Mm. The uh, three-year cycle got less predictable. Uh, from 88, uh, there were kind of... The, the 90s were kind of a uh, less uh, obvious in terms of uh, waves and that kind of thing. And it was certainly you know, during the, the late 80s and 90s that the abduction phenomenon, like, like the United States, uh, became almost centre stage. Uh, we had huge numbers of sightings uh, uh, people like myself and Keith Basterville, another researcher in Australia and uh, a number of other researchers uh, were, had been quietly focusing on uh, abduction type cases uh, since the late 70s and early 80s and, uh, and we kind of noted that there was a kind of an increase in these reports and certainly by uh, the late 80s, early 90s, uh, these seem to be taking uh, almost centre stage, uh, either rightly or wrongly in terms of, I guess, the researchers and uh, other uh, commentators uh, on the on the subject, and and so abduction accounts seem to dominate a lot of the attention, just like in America, uh, uh, and that was the case in Australia as well. Um, and and it and it certainly started to dominate my attention as well in terms of research, um, uh, attempting to try and see whether there was a physical basis to these UFO accounts, uh, particularly the um, alien abduction stories. And so there are a fair share of abductions in uh, Australia as well. Yeah, well, it's it, it, probably the, the two most uh, prominent in terms of, um, I guess, uh, research details um, was the case um, that's probably fairly well known to American uh, researchers, and that's the Kelly Carhill case that occurred in the early 90s um, down in Victoria um, uh, at a place called Narry Warren. And uh, uh, that was a pretty striking case because, like a lot of researchers, um, uh, examining, who have been examining the 
male abduction subject uh, from the 70s and through the 80s, uh, we're all kind of feeling that uh, a lot of the abduction stories told us more about the eccentricities of the human condition than it did about UFO experiences. Uh, we kind of felt that there was possibly psychological dimensions to the, a lot of these tales, etc. And a lot of the abductees were quite credible individuals, uh, uh, but more often than not, there was very little physical evidence uh, for their experiences and so obviously one was wondering whether or not a lot of this had to do with all sorts of different psychological mechanisms and, and that made the Kelly Carl uh, case um, uh, from Victoria in the early 90s a very interesting case because uh, here for the first time it seemed uh, uh, we were dealing with a case that not only involved Kelly Carl and her husband uh, in one car but also apparently two other separate vehicles, independent witnesses uh, that didn't know each other. Uh, there were, uh, was a second car involved that appeared to have three people in it and a third car that had one single individual. And all of these people apparently participated in some sort of UFO alien encounter. Uh, and uh, certainly for the, for the members of the second car, it also took the form of an abduction experience as well as it did in Kelly Carl's uh, situation as well. And also reported that the site was apparently physical evidence. Now, this case became a fairly uh, well-documented case in the sense that uh, Kelly Cahill contacted me in terms of uh, trying to get this case investigated. Because I was in New South Wales, I decided to uh, pass or, or encourage her to get in contact with a Victorian organisation, uh, uh, Phenomena Research Australia, and uh, that was a decision I later grew to regret simply because... Um, after more than a decade or so, uh, we still haven't seen the, the full extent of the data that they claim to have amassed on the case, uh, which was kind of frustrating, uh, particularly from my point of view, because uh, I was kind of interested in this case in particular because it represented possibly one of the first opportunities to have concrete evidence, uh, physical evidence, ground markings, physiological and physical effects on the, on the witnesses. Uh, it had a lot of apparent physical dimensions to it, and plus that element of, of being independently witnessed by a number of different people, uh, all which could have provided pretty powerful evidence for the objective reality of, of an alien abduction encounter. Uh, so for me as a scientist, uh, I was kind of pretty frustrated by that case because uh, the uh, investigators that uh, I'd passed uh, the case on to um, uh, pretty much uh, have to this day have uh, not allowed full access to the data they claim to have, have gathered on the case. Huh. So uh, that frustration kind of led me to be a little bit more uh, uh, careful about which organisations and individuals to pass cases on to. And uh, about that same time, another case started to uh, come into prominence, and this was uh, the, the UFO abduction experiences of a Sydney gentleman by the name of Peter Curie. Uh, now, he had had a, a kind of, I guess you'd call it a classic, alien abduction experience that occurred in 1988, uh, very similar to uh, kind of experiences that people like Whitley Strieber reported, uh, uh, claiming to have uh, been subjected to uh, an examination, uh, having entities appear around him and uh, sticking kind of needle-like objects into his head, that kind of thing. It was a very frightening kind of transformative experience for uh, Peter Curie because at that stage he was a, a young uh, Lebanese man of a... Christian Maronite background who had emigrated to Australia from Lebanon, uh, working in the building industry. He was kind of the, the last kind of person you'd expect to be coming forth with an experience like this. And indeed, he had 
no context in which to understand his own experience because it seemed to him to be um, uh, something uh, that his own family circle thought was something to do with, with the devil or something like this uh, or, or something of that nature. He didn't really uh, know much about alien abductions at that stage and it wasn't until he saw a, a big billboard uh, which was part of a, uh, a kind of a, a clever poster campaign to promote the paperback edition of Whitney Strieber's book Communion uh, which had the, the, the classic alien grey face on this poster. Uh, he's driving past there with uh, past a uh, service station or petrol station as you would call it in America uh, and saw this huge alien face and this is the thing that he had experienced in 1988 uh, a year or two earlier and uh, he couldn't understand uh, <laughs> what this was about because it had uh, the advertising campaign made no reference to the book or anything like that. It was just part of a very clever advertising campaign and it took about a, a couple of weeks before they realised that this was about a book, a Whitley Strieber's book, Communion, and uh, eventually uh, they acquired the book. Uh, his fiancée, Vivian, read the book first and uh, she said, Peter, you've got to read this book. This is all about things that you've been telling us about uh, uh, your own experience that you had in 88 and uh, when he eventually did read the book he found that there were just as many um, dissimilarities as there were similarities in terms of his own experience but uh, for the first time he had some kind of anchor point in which to perhaps try to understand his own experiences that he's had. You got a light buddy? Yeah sure kid. There you go. And your wallet. Nick, give him your wallet. What for? He's got a knife. <laughs> That's not a knife. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. That's a knife. He began to realise that he'd had earlier experiences, even experiences as a young kid uh, back in Lebanon in the, uh, the early 70s, that kind of thing. So it was a, in that context that I got to know Peter Curie, but it was... What really became interesting was a 1992 experience that he claimed he had, which involved a early morning experience at about seven o'clock in the morning. He, he was actually recovering um, uh, from a, a job in, injury that he had, a fairly severe head injury that he had experienced, and uh, uh, and he had uh, was off work, and his wife was. Um, the only person um, making money in the family, so he would drop her off to the um, railway station so she could go off to work, and uh, he, he came back uh, at 7 o'clock in the morning, so he clearly was awake at that stage. He got back in the bed but wasn't feeling very well, um, and it was within a few minutes of that, returning to the house, that uh, this experience played out, which is a very bizarre experience. It involved two uh, what appeared to be... Um, human-looking females that were both uh, naked uh, that, that appeared in his house. Uh, and he had a pretty confronting experience uh, uh, that uh, the long and short of it was that uh, he was left with what appeared to be tangible evidence. That was a, a blonde hair sample that he connected uh, with one of the, the strange-looking women uh, that appeared to be like a, a blonde haired, blue-eyed, uh, Nordic-looking woman, and because he had become aware of the UFO subject up to a point by that stage, he decided that uh, he, he would keep this hair sample, this blonde hair sample, and it was through that that 
basically I, I became involved because uh, it represented an opportunity that here for the first time we had clear biological evidence uh, to examine uh, in, in what appeared to be an alien abduction experience and uh, uh, we decided at probably some risk to Peter's credibility uh, that we should try and apply a, a very detailed uh, scientific forensic investigation of this and I pointed out to Peter that you know this, this, this held great risks for him because uh, if this hair sample turned out to be entirely uh, normal or prosaic um, then he would have a lot of explaining to do to, particularly to his own wife by that stage uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, so, so it was a, a pretty bizarre kind of situation and uh, it was certainly by that stage uh, and this was getting in towards the, uh, the late 90s by this stage because, uh, as you can imagine, because of the nature of that experience, um, uh, this was not something that he was willing to uh, share publicly. Um, mm-hmm. uh, certainly by the mid-90s, um, Peter had, had become so- something of a crusader uh, amongst uh, people that, that had these sort of abduction experiences because he had uh, decided... Um, because he had so much difficulty trying to get people like doctors and others to um, help him out to try and understand his own earlier experience, particularly the 1988 experience, uh, he started to become a bit of a crusader in this area and set up a, a kind of a support group for people like himself. So that it became easier to try and deal with these experiences. And so he set up a, a pretty impressive kind of UFO support group um, the UFO abductee support group type of thing. These are very similar, I guess, in nature to the kind of support groups that emerged in the United States under people like uh, Bud Hopkins and others to help support people that feel that they've had these sort of experiences. And uh, I got to know a lot of the people involved with this sort of support group, and uh, I was pretty impressed with what Peter had done in terms of setting this up. But one of the things he also tried to do, because he set up this group that had um, mainstream... Uh, uh, people, uh, psychiatrists and uh, uh, psychologists and that kind of stuff, you know, mainstream health professionals involved uh, yeah. and even scientists and that kind of thing involved with it. He um, decided, well, he would make them aware of this 1992 experience that involved this hair sample and he, he found that even then most of the professionals didn't really cope very well with this experience. They kind of said to Peter, well, I think... Uh, it's better you stay with what was regarded as, I guess, uh, consistent kind of alien abduction experience. Yeah, things yeah, that a normal did Within the norm. And, yeah. and yet uh, when I learned of this experience a few years later, uh, I realised that here was a chance to kind of uh, verify, the, I guess, the, the reality of the, these alien abduction experiences. Uh, why not have a look at this hair sample and scrutinise it from a, a DNA forensic point of view and uh, see, see if Peter's story stands up? And so by that stage, the late 90s, um, I, I had a, a kind of a, a private group of scientists um, and that group had, had uh, also expanded to include a number of biochemists. And uh, when I broached the possibility of examining this case with them, uh, I was kind of fully expecting them to uh, recoil uh, and, and not be interested in investigating this case. And yet, uh, surprisingly, they were very keen because uh, they realised that irrespective of the bizarre nature of the experience that Peter reported or experienced back in 1992, uh, here was an opportunity to uh, apply a bit of real science to uh, a controversial area to see whether it held up. And uh, yeah. So it, it became a, a really detailed 
long, drawn-out and rather costly investigation, but it's something that, in fact, still uh, involves my kind of uh, research focus even to the, uh, right through to today. So it, it became one of the more rewarding and more complex and more, I guess, uh, revealing kind of investigations. Yeah, and I presume that's, a, I'm going to take a leap of logic here and presume that's where the hair of the alien came from, the book, right? <laughs> that's great, yeah. Yeah. yeah um, Unless you've got two two hairs going on there. Now, what? obviously it's still ongoing, but what, what would you say the findings are so far with regards to the, you know, the DNA and the forensic evidence you got on this hair? Well, essentially, uh, that investigation has kind of led to what I regard as a kind of a, a almost a, a four-phase type of program or of investigation and research. Now, what was regarded as phase one uh, was uh, what I eventually wrote up and reported in the uh, International UFO Report, the publication that um, was put out by the uh, Centre for UFO Studies out of Chicago um, uh, back in 1999. They published a, an article of mine called Strange Evidence, which focused on the first uh, investigation that we did from a DNA point of view, uh, what we did was that we examined the hair sample, uh, particularly we focused on the shaft of the hair sample. This was a, a blonde uh, hair sample. Um, and from that, uh, what we uh, gleaned from that was that uh, we got some pretty rare Asian mongoloid DNA profiles from it, which really was quite puzzling because uh, here we were, the actual Asian mongoloid DNA sequences were were quite rare in the databases that we had available to us uh, out of Asia and China and all other diverse parts there. And uh, with the hair sample uh, it being blonde, we fully expected it to uh, uh, reveal some sort of, uh, I guess, um, Caucasian-type DNA profile. That's what you'd expect from, from the hair sample in terms of its appearance. and. Uh, uh, and particularly when you take into consideration what, uh, who Peter Curry believed was the donor of this hair sample, this blonde, blue-eyed, Nordic-looking woman. Uh, uh, and uh, so he fully expected to get some sort of routine um, Caucasian DNA profile, and yet from this we got this rare Asia-Mongoloid uh, DNA profile. So that, that in itself was a pretty inexplicable result, and that's what we reported back in 1999. Now, that was the first phase. Now, we we then went on to what we call the second phase, which was to examine the root of the hair sample uh, and to see if we could um, uh, reconfirm those same results. And uh, what we found was that um, while we stuck to the shaft of the hair sample and got closer towards the root, we, we were still verifying this Asian mongoloid DNA profile. But when we examined the root, we found that, in fact, we were getting a, a range of different DNA sequences, and, th and these seemed to approximate rare Basque Gaelic kind of DNA profiles. Now this this was quite inexplicable because uh, uh, particularly to the, the biochemists and these biochemists that were working with me were biochemists that uh, were quite well known in the field uh, of DNA research and uh, these, these were uh, certainly in particular the main biochemist working with me was a highly credentialed uh, biochemist well published in biochemistry journals even a writer of textbooks and that kind of thing. Um, so, uh, but ob he obviously, uh, in terms of career path, was not wanting to have his name directly associated with the with the investigation because it was obviously seen as a fringe, controversial area, which yeah. wasn't going to get him any brownie points in terms of his own peer group. But uh, having this kind of 
distinct difference between the DNA profile in the root and the DNA profile in the shaft um, uh, was just a, a kind of a, a very striking result, a very bizarre result, and it, it kind of seemed to go some way to, uh, I guess, support uh, the uh, idea that a lot of researchers in this area argue that uh, this is all part of the alien abduction experience. It's all part of some sort of genetic uh, experimentation program to produce some sort of alien-human hybrid and here in this hair sample we have what appears to be evidence of a hybrid DNA result and uh, if you take human hair and indeed um, any part of the skin, blood, that kind of stuff, uh, you should be getting a consistent DNA profile. Yeah. There are some interesting um, and obscure DNA properties such as uh, heteroplasmy and others that uh, do generate differences in DNA, particularly in hair and stuff like that, but these are very small shifts in DNA, and, and yet in this sample we're getting a, a very large difference between a uh, Asian mongoloid DNA uh, sequence in the, in the shaft and this rare bar garlic DNA in, in the root, and so that was very striking. But in addition, we got uh, through examining the nuclear DNA, we we got evidence supportive of of a, another rare DNA property, and that was uh, what's referred to as CCR5 deletion factor. Now, that, this is a pretty convoluted term, but it, essentially what it implies is that if you've, if you've got this uh, deleted factor in your DNA sequence, uh, you would be immune to things like HIV, AIDS, and things like smallpox. Huh. Um, and so, so it's a pretty interesting um, but unfortunately fairly rare DNA sequence uh, or DNA uh, mutation that occurs and it occurs fairly sporadically amongst, uh, particularly amongst uh, uh, Northern European communities um, but beyond that it's spread fairly uh, inconsistently and thinly through different communities but unfortunately it's almost largely absent in Asian communities and African communities where uh, Unfortunately, HIV and AIDS is, is very right. But, yeah. um, and that in itself was a pretty unusual set of properties. Here we had uh, the uh, rare Asian mongoloid DNA in, in, in the shaft, uh, the rare basque garlic DNA in the, in the root uh, of the hair. Uh, uh, so we had this apparent hybrid-type properties associated with the hair sample plus this uh, uh, mutation uh, or suggestion of, of evidence for the mutation that seemed to suggest that the donor of the hair sample was also um, immune to things like uh, HIV, AIDS and smallpox, that kind of stuff. So uh, uh, all in this one hair sample. So we're, we're kind of pretty struck and yeah. blown away by those results and uh, that's what was substantially reported as phase two work uh, in the book Hair of the Alien which came out in 2005. Now since then uh, uh, what I call phase three has been to try and understand the, the nature of some of these DNA sequences and we were always interested in what was this rare Asian mongoloid DNA sequence that we'd come across and uh, so we started trying to figure that out because most of the, uh, uh, there, was, there was only a limited number of people that, that appeared to have that DNA sequence and uh, uh, the DNA data banks are unfortunately anonymous, particularly more so in the Chinese databases. Um, we were trying to figure out where did that rare Asian mongoloid DNA sequence come from mm -hmm. and we were able to determine that it appears to be almost unique to a uh, ethnic minority group 
uh, called the Lahu. Uh, this is a native people that are mainly located in northern Thailand and also in southern China, particularly the province of Yunnan, and also in uh, Burma, which is now called Miramar. Uh, so that's the main population area that seem to have this. And uh, and so uh, during 2006, uh, I was involved in a field investigation there in northern Thailand and southern China to uh, examine uh, and investigate and research the Lahuk uh, community. And uh, this whole area revealed a lot of other pretty unusual kind of situations, a lot of UFO light phenomena and unusual light phenomena, um, shamanic type uh, situations amongst the Lahu, um, even reports of some of the spiritual uh, shaman type people uh, claiming what I guess to the West could be seen as UFO kind of experiences and uh, things that approximate type of abduction experiences. So it, it certainly made for some pretty unusual verifications of, of this and we were led to this by this uh, hair sample that Peter Curie had recovered back in 1992 so it's a fairly bizarre sequence but um, it's, a, it's a kind of a pretty exotic trail that I'm following but it certainly doesn't seem to have an end at the moment. Um, yeah, that's an interesting saga and what just so just to, uh, to satisfy my obsessive compulsive disorder, what's the fourth stage? You said you had four stages so what, what will be the fourth one when you finish this third? Well, given the one of the things that we, we were conscious of in terms of the biochemists and myself uh, working together on this was that uh, in amongst the biochemistry community, there's, there's a lot of interesting um, things that are discussed, etc., within private D, uh, DNA biochemistry circles, etc., but uh, a lot of unusual kinds of uh, DNA properties and sequences and speculations that go on that um, generally don't see the light of day in terms of mainstream publication and research uh, simply because there's not enough compelling evidence and some of it's pretty weird and out there and uh, these biochemists have been making me aware of a lot of this kind of data and some unusual correlations and that kind of thing and so the, the phase four work is essentially trying to focus on what I regard as kind of the alien DNA paradigm, the, the idea that uh, while a lot of people feel that the alien ex abduction experience is something that's pretty difficult to get a handle on. Uh, what I'm trying to advocate here is that we should be really trying to apply a, a forensic kind of scientific approach to these experiences because even if we can't understand the experiences and we can't get a handle of it, if we look at it as a kind of a crime scene, uh, we can at least attempt to try and uh, get their biological signature, so to speak, particularly if this case of Peter Curie's has highlighted that, yeah, we seem to be dealing, certainly in some cases, of uh, beings that appear to be almost human-like, you know, and, and this is a, a thing that's been very prominent amongst experiences worldwide, that the two most prominent kinds of entities that are reported are your so-called classic grey-type diminutive aliens, with your large wraparound eyes, that kind of thing, and also these Nordic human-looking people. Um, and this is precisely the kind of thing that Peter Curie's experiences have been uh, highlighting. So, and so this phase four is, uh, investigation is really focusing on this DNA signature, this whole paradigm of looking at whether or not various remote cultures like the Lahu and others uh, have this signature and because when you start to look at a lot of these primitive cultures worldwide you find that they're incredibly rich in stories of uh, of uh, what appear to be like alien abduction, alien contact type experiences uh, right through a lot of the cultures and uh, one of the uh, 
uh, more striking ones is the uh, that karate story out of Brazil that involves the uh, one of the tribes there in in, in the Brazil Brazilian jungle that that have this tradition of um, of a sky being coming to earth and imparting to them the rudiments of civilization and that kind of stuff and they have this annual ceremony of uh, one of the tribes field dressing up in this straw like costume that looks for all like a, a spaceman costume etc and they do this every year and their ritual um, uh, ceremonies etc and, and uh, when asked what was the basis of this they talk about the appearance of a being that uh, arrived uh, from some sort of uh, skycraft um, uh, coming amongst the, the local tribal people uh, and uh, having what they called a cope or a, a sort of a stick-like device that when the, the various aggressive natives tried to approach this gentleman to try and um, uh, subdue him, uh, he would shine this thing at, at them and uh, they would be subdued and uh, literally paralysed. So it was a pretty bizarre story, but this, this is not unique. Um, there are tribal cultures worldwide that have these kinds of traditions and that's the focus of this uh, Phase 4 investigation, to examine all those kinds of groups of people to see whether or not there's uh, something to this because uh, a lot of them claim that they have this deep connection to the point of interbreeding with uh, these people from the skies, etc. So if there's any substance to it, we suspect that maybe we, we might see some evidence of unusual DNA signatures there as well. Yeah, nice, interesting. This is a fascinating story, this hair, hair of the alien. Now, has it been vetted by, you know, independent scientists down there? Have they backed up your your group's uh, investigation into the DNA? Yeah, there have been a number of, of, of private uh, verifications of it. Uh, because, unfortunately, because of the uh, difficulty with the um, privacy of the primary investigators, uh, they don't want to jeopardise their own careers in mainstream uh, biochemistry. Uh, we've been fairly limited in that respect. Uh, because we spread the net open uh, to try and get hold of other samples, um, uh, uh, because this is only just one case, uh, obviously yeah. as a scientist I'd be much more comfortable with this if I had hundreds of cases like yeah. this. Uh, I've tried to encourage a lot of the seasoned researchers in this field to uh, um, make available anything that they had that they felt fell within this kind of uh, biochemical or uh, sort of biological kind of uh, sample area. And uh, we've, we've investigated a number of these cases uh, already and uh, some of them are somewhat well-known to a certain extent. Um, and in one of those cases uh, was a case that I guess was a bit notorious in the United States, the so-called alien claw case out of um, California, uh, where uh, a gentleman, a local, uh, I think he was a, a fire captain or, or some similar background, that he claimed that he was having a whole series of abduction, alien contact experiences, even claimed to have photographed um, some of these alien beings and that kind of stuff. Um, and in one experience, he claimed that he recovered what appeared to be uh, the remnants of a, of a claw, uh, an alien claw, so it became known as the alien claw case. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was uh, when I looked at that, I kind of felt that this was emerging from what I regarded as the hotbed of American ufology, California, that kind of stuff. It had a lot of <laughs> controversial elements to it, and uh, I, I was kind of asking uh, some of the more seasoned researchers over there to perhaps do a bit more of a investigation because I was mindful of the fact that these kinds of investigations, particularly the biochemical ones, are very time-consuming, very expensive, and uh, it can be quite sort of uh, daunting to uh, undertake, etc. So rather than get involved with it uh, and then find that it didn't have much going for it, I, I was kind of seeking 
some independent verification. That's how we got to know Dr. Cole Kellner, uh, who was part of the NIDS organisation. That's the National Institute for Discovery Science. It's an organisation that was put together by uh, Robert Bigelow. Now, Cole Kellner, fortunately, had a very good, strong background in biochemistry, and uh, that allowed a bit of private consultation between the biochemists working with me uh, and Cole Kellner himself. And uh, he was able to, uh, he was very impressed with the work that was done uh, by the biochemists here on the Pitakuri case and, and therefore he was kind of willing to undertake a little bit of an investigation into the alien claw case and ultimately um, he got to a stage where he felt, well, there, there may well be something worthwhile here and, and decided to um, encourage the NIDS organisation to support uh, DNA work that we undertook here. And so eventually, to cut a long story short, uh, uh, with, uh, the, I guess, the support of people like uh, Dr. Roger Lear, who was involved with the case, and uh, Cole Cullinar, uh, we, we were able to get samples of the alien claw sample sent to us here in Australia, and we undertook an investigation of that. And it became a very detailed and complex investigation uh, because uh, we were concerned about the provenance of the sample and, and also um, uh, how credible this sample was. And... Uh, uh, and it became ultimately a, a bit of a cautionary tale because initially the initial round of DNA investigation we undertook with the sample highlighted that we seem to be getting some pretty bizarre results, but obviously we, we wanted to replicate them as we did in the Peter Curie case. Yeah. And uh, when we tried to replicate the testing again, just standard procedure in this kind of DNA work, we weren't getting the same sets of results. And we thought something's going on here uh, that uh, we haven't fully accounted for, and that's why we then tried to get further investigation done into the providence of the sample uh, and to more closely examine the sample. And when we started to do that, we we found that uh, what we were dealing with here, uh, appeared, uh, when we started to uh, do some fairly detailed investigation here, we found that uh, maybe we weren't dealing with a claw or as suggested by uh, the original researchers, but something a little bit more prosaic. And eventually, uh, once we realised this, we started, we had to develop brand new DNA primer techniques to do all this work. Uh, so that in itself was a bit of a break too. But ultimately, when we did that and made allowances for this, uh, we got very consistent results. And those consistent results confirmed that uh, what we're dealing here wasn't a alien claw, but in fact a, a prosaic Earth-based snail or a mollusk. Oh man! Uh, so, and, and and we're getting very consistent results with that, and uh, we we felt that uh, that that was further endorsement of the power of the whole DNA technique. That uh, if if you uh, apply sufficient controls to the process and establish the credibility of the sample in the first place, uh, then uh, if, if DNA forensic techniques apply a very powerful tool to trying to come to some sort of uh, understanding of what's going on here. And so in this case, while it doesn't necessarily invalidate the whole uh, case out of California, it does kind of provide a, a pretty prosaic, mundane explanation for this sample that the witness thought was involved with his experience. Uh, so it, it was a, a pretty good investigation from a, a researcher's scientific point of view even though it, it was a fairly exhausting investigation. So it was essentially a cautionary tale in terms of investigations. And these these are, are very complex investigations, and, and yet it provided a good, positive, solid result. 
so that that didn't uh, phase the researchers in the sense that we we obviously just wanted to get an answer one way or another. So yeah. uh, so the Curie case was still the only one that we felt had a, a very strong result associated with it. We got involved with the famous Betty and Barney Hill case as well. Uh, in, in that case, this is the classic case out of 1961 mm-hmm. uh, that's become quite famous in, uh, in terms of uh, alien abductions research and and, and the history of the, of the subject. Uh, in that case, Betty Hill had her dress that she wore during that experience uh, uh, had an unusual stain on it, and it, and it was always uh, something that interested people but was never investigated in any depth and uh, uh, that dress remained in uh, Betty's closet uh, for decades and uh, then eventually it came to the attention of uh, 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 Phyllis Buttinger who is a a chemist like myself and uh, she um, uh, was interested in trying to do some uh, physical chemistry work on this and ultimately the work that she did on it seemed to imply that this stain had uh, possibly uh, evidence of amides uh, attached to it and because of that she felt it might have been a possible good candidate for DNA work and because of the good work that she did we felt that yes this would be an extremely worthwhile thing to do and ultimately we eventually got samples of the dress and started doing DNA work on it Uh, but uh, what we found here uh, none of it was evidence of any think alien, uh, what we found was that the unusual pink stain appeared to be uh, related to spider's blood and uh, there was also evidence of DNA that was uh, Ethiopian in nature which we felt correlated to Barney Hill, her husband who was uh, an African-American person in terms of uh, nationality. Uh, So that, 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 that in itself highlighted once again the power of the DNA technique to come up with some sort of, uh, I guess, um, grounding of, of the result or the situation. Uh, here we had uh, this dress that uh, may have been good evidence. Uh, it would have been fantastic to have applied this technique back in the early 60s, but unfortunately the DNA techniques were just not available then, of course. Yeah. Um, as for spider's blood on Betty's dress, um, we're not sure about that, but it appeared that the technique was powerful enough to suggest that the spider's blood was uh, local spider's blood to the New Hampshire area. So we, we even had that ability to uh, come that far with it. So we, uh, we felt that maybe somehow uh, she'd sat on on, on a spider or, or had come into contact and uh, the spider had been killed and, that, uh, and the blood had, had appeared on the dress that way. And, and so that might have been part of the answer for this stain that appeared on Betty Hill's dress. So, uh, so that, that, that was a, another case. So we've looked at a couple of other cases, but uh, none of them have uh, revealed results as, as good as and as strong as the uh, Peter Curie case. Interesting. Yeah, that's a fascinating... But it, but it also, th- through all that process, it allowed, uh, I guess that's a long-winded answer to your question about uh, verification or uh, duplication of the results. We've had the opportunity of people like Cole Kellner to at least look at the quality of the work that has been done in the Curry case and also particularly the, the kind of work that we did in the um, Alien Claw case, that kind of thing, and uh, it, uh, he was pretty impressed with the work that was done. We've put a lot of time here into discussing, you know, the history of the UFO phenomenon in Australia. Now let's sort of dive into some of the other pillars 
of Australian ufology. And, and the first thing I want to talk about is Australian ufology. You know, that history of organized UFO studies. We had it here in America. We have it, you know, obviously NICAP, APRO, MUFON, sort of that evolution of groups. You know, some of them grow, some of them die. I guess just talk about the history of organized UFO studies in Australia. Uh, you have a nice little piece on your website about it. And uh, talk a little bit about Edgar Gerald and his uh, strange story in general. Right. Well, Edgar Jarrell was uh, regarded as, I guess, the father of Australian ufology. We're going to leave you on that cliffhanger to make sure you come back next week for part two of the Bill Chalker interview. For now, that does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 3. Big, big, super huge thanks to Bill Chalker for coming on the show. Of course, as noted here with the cliffhanger, he'll be back next week to talk about more Australian ufology. We're going to be talking about the history of Australian UFO studies from both the government and the civilian perspective, the role of the media, the role of the military, and the perspective of the everyday people in Australia with regards to UFOs, plus some discussion on the Chinese UFO scene that you are not going to want to miss. All that's next week on the program with Bill Chalker. Until then, you definitely want to check out Bill's websites, www.theozfiles.com, and ozfiles.blogspot.com. Check those out. Lots of great information on the Australian UFO scene, courtesy of Bill Chalker. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And this week we have less of a comment or a question, more of a plug, but I found the material pretty intriguing, so we'll throw in the plug here. This plug comes from Rao Draco. And here's what he has to say. Tim, I am one of your listeners. I am Rao, the creator of Cosmic Communism. I have created a new ideological movement that fuses communism, spirituality, deep ecology, and extraterrestrial civilizations. You may be interested in my perspective on UFOs. And then he lists about five blogs, but just to keep it short and sweet, I'll just give you the first one. You can check that one out. Use that to jump to the other websites. The blog is cosmiccommunism.blogspot.com. Check that out. Check out the cosmic communism movement that Rao has created. And he signs off on the letter Namaste. There you go, Rao. Hopefully the BOA Audio listeners, of which you are one, as you say here in the letter, will check out cosmiccommunism.blogspot.com and uh, dive into the world of cosmic communism. I'm definitely going to be checking it out in the next few weeks to see what it is all about and see maybe if we can talk to Rao on the program at some point in the future. If you would like to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, you got a question, a comment, maybe a plug like Rao here, any of that stuff, it's cool with me. We'll put it on here at the end of the program. Here's how you go about contacting me. You can either write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button at the bottom of the menu on the left-hand side of the screen. Or you can join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Check it out. It's free to register. It's free to become a member. And that is where not only myself, but the great BOA staff and a ton of great BOA readers and listeners and supporters hang out and discuss all things esoteric and not so esoteric 
like the NBA playoffs and the TV show Lost. We got a lot of great threads going on about that stuff, plus lots of discussion on the world of the paranormal and paranormal media. Either one of those three methods is a means to an end, the end being getting your correspondence onto BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, you guessed it, it is the thanks portion of the show. Allow me to give a heartfelt and sincere thanks to the fantastic BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, and Richard Thomas of Wales. Big time congratulations also this week to Leslie on three years of writing for BOA with the weekly column Gray Matters. Leslie has been integral to the success of BOA over the last three years. We would be a shell of what we are today without her support, friendship, and contributions to the website. And I want to take a moment here to say thank you, Leslie, for your continued commitment and support of BOA. Congratulations on three years, and here's to another great year of Gray Matters at Benal of America. I say it week in and week out, but I repeat it over and over again because it's the truth, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at benallofamerica.com, you're only getting half the story, top-notch reading material, day after day after day, courtesy of the outstanding BOA staff. Benallofamerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Now, chances are you've already finished listening to the first part here of the Bill Chalker interview. I must point out, of course, that you've just heard an hour-long phone call to Australia. You're going to hear the other hour and a half next week on the program. That's a two-and-a-half-hour call to Sydney, Australia. My friends, that costs a pretty decent chunk of change. It's also, I believe, our fifth international call of the season so far. We had Nick Pope in the UK, Christo Lowe in South Africa, Gildas Bourdais in Paris, France, and Dr. Bob Curran in Ireland. That is a plethora of international phone calls, and as you can expect, that's a plethora of international phone call bills that come my way. Those bills are paid for by yours truly with the help of supportive BOA listeners who make donations. How can you make a donation? That's simple. You go to banalofamerica.com, click the PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal and facilitate your donation. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping Banal of America and Banal of America Audio up and running and freely available for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. It's no big secret, next week on the program we're going back to the island, the island of Australia, my friends, of course, with Bill Chalker, Part 2. It is the second installment of our ultra-long-distance conversation with the Australian ufologist Bill Chalker as we cover the history of Australian UFO studies from both a civilian and government perspective. We'll hear about the fascinating story of Edgar Gerald, and also Bill's examination of the official Australian UFO files. We'll discuss the media's coverage of the UFO phenomenon in Australia, and how the general public feels about unidentified flying objects in the land down under. On top of all that, we'll talk about the world of Chinese ufology, an area that Bill has been investigating over the last few years, and get a glimpse into this mysterious world of UFO research. All that and, of course, tons and tons more, standing alongside our examinations of South Africa and France. It's another eye-opening look at the world of UFO studies across the globe. That's next week, part two of Bill Chalker, 
talking about Australian ufology on BOA Audio Season 3. And on that note, we close it out here for the week. Thank you so much for listening, folks. Thank you for your support of BOA Audio. It is greatly appreciated. Until next week, this is Tim Benall, signing off.